Well, again, good morning. My name is George Davis, and thank you for joining us this morning. It was four years ago, I was taking one of our sons on a series of campus visits. We were actually traveling in the deep south of our country. And while we were in Birmingham, Alabama, we went to the Civil Rights Institute in downtown Birmingham, which recounts the civil rights movement in that region of the country. It's a sobering museum to go through. And we walked through it, and and my son was unusually quiet. And we came out of the museum, and when you come out of this museum and you come back to the street, off to your left is the historic 16th Street Baptist Church in downtown Birmingham. A historically African-American church. This was a church that was firebombed by members of the Ku Klux Klan in 1963. And these four young girls were killed. And, and so as you come out of that museum, that this was to your left, so I talked to him a little bit about this church. And then right in front of us as we came out of this museum, there's this large park area, historic park in downtown Birmingham, the Kelly Ingram Park. And this was the park, this was the area where also in 1963, a group of individuals were protesting as part of the civil rights movement and the first responders were instructed to let loose a barrage of water from fire hoses. And so as you stand here with this museum on your left and this historic church on your right, in front of you is this park, and there, there actually is a monument, a memorial to these historic events in the park itself. And so I'm standing there with my son, and, you know, and, and once again, he's just quiet. And, and so I said, okay, tell me, help, you know, I try to pull him out in conversation. So what are, what are you... What are you thinking? And this is what he said to me. He said, Dad, I know this is history. But I don't get it. And then he repeated that phrase. I just don't get it. And as I think back on that conversation, I think underlying my son's observations was the question Why? Why would people do this to other people? Why would we treat other people this way? Why does this happen? Now those questions actually bring us to our topic this morning. And our topic this morning is sin. Now, my guess is none of you got up this morning going, you know, I've got to get to church because we're going to hear a message on sin, all right? Woohoo, right? I realize that probably wasn't your mindset, even if you've been doing a study with us. I get to hear that message today. And maybe some of you, you're new or relatively new to church, and all I'm about to do is just confirm the stereotypes, right, you have about Christianity, right? They, They just want to pile it on. They just want to make you feel guilty. That's what it's all about. I realize the topic of sin may not have been on your highest level of your agenda as you got up this morning. But even if we didn't really plan on talking about it, even if you didn't plan on hearing about it as you came to church this morning, isn't it the case, isn't it the case that there are moments in life where in some sense you find yourself right next to my son going, why? Why is this happening? 
Sometimes we find ourselves asking really the big why questions about our culture, right? Why will people treat others differently simply on the basis of their skin color or their ethnic background or their situation in life? Why will we choose not to value the dignity of human life just because this life is not yet born yet? Why in a moment of polarizing cultural realities do we struggle to actually talk to one another? Why at times do people feel so willing to go after one another and presume the worst even in person or on social media? Right? Don't you ever, don't you deal with those why questions? And even if you don't really wrestle with the bigger cultural why questions, at points we look in our own lives and there are seasons, there are situations, relationships where we ask those same sorts of questions. At some point you have wrestled with, why did this person treat me that way? Why did they say that? Why did they undermine me? Why is my work environment such a toxic place to be? And tragically for some of us here, you... You raise those questions about your own family. Because some of us are here and we have discovered the tragic truth that while family can be a place of nurturing and encouragement and equipping, family can also be those places where we are deeply and tragically hurt. And some of you are carrying that with you right now. And I've got to tell you, as, the, as a pastor, the hardest stories to hear are the family stories. The stories of hurt, the stories of pain, the stories of ongoing estrangement. And we ask why? Why are my relationships in my family like this? And, and if, we're, if, we're, if we're open and honest, at times the, the why questions aren't just about other people, they're also about ourselves. Why, why did I get stuck in these patterns of thinking or behavior? <laughs> why am I here right now as a result of poor choices that I've made and And you see, the truth is, while you may not have thought about getting up and coming to hear a message on sin, the truth is, as we continue our journey through the Old Testament, Genesis 3, which is where we're going to be at this morning, actually has tremendous explanatory power in helping us understand the world in which we live, understanding our relationships, and understanding ourselves. So with that in mind, let me invite you, if you've got a Bible with you, either a hard copy, mobile device, or take the one out of the pew, join with me now in turning to Genesis chapter 3, the opening book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. If you're new this morning, we're in this this series we call Love This Book, where we're going together as a church through the first half of the Old Testament. Let me just remind you and encourage you again to to engage in this series. We've got study guides, and if you're new, you'd like to pick one up, they're available as you leave. And, you know, even a few days ago, I was at a meeting at Starbucks, and what was so encouraging was to walk into Starbucks and see one of the guys from our church sitting there with his coffee, and he had his book out, and he was kind of engaging God in Scripture as we're going through this together. So I just want to encourage you to do that. Also just encourage you as for those of us who are parents, that this is a great opportunity to engage your kids because remember our kids are going through the same 
parts of scripture. So if there's, you know, even there's a family, you've got older kids, pull out one of those questions from the workbook. Just see if you can start some conversation. Like one of the questions this week in the, you know, the study guide was, well, how do we, how can we have hope in this, in a world that is chaotic and filled with sin? What does that hope look like? And just, I encourage you week by week, see if you can foster some of those types of conversations. So now let us come, um, Let's come to Genesis chapter 3, and I I want you just to follow along. I'm going to read the opening part of this chapter. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you are naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And then the man said, well, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. Now, as we look at this thing, we've got, we've got to admit there are all sorts of questions uh, that aren't actually answered. You know, we get questions like, so where exactly is this garden and... We want more details about that. What exactly was Satan's relationship with the serpent? And the truth is we aren't given all the details perhaps that we would like, but what we are given is this reality, that evil is now part of the world in which we live. And to understand this, what I want to do is is start by just unpacking a couple of questions. So let's just begin by talking about Satan and how he operates. I think we have to pay attention to that in this text because his strategy today is really the same strategy he used in the garden. So what exactly was Satan's strategy? Well, look again at verse one, right? He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now notice, foundational to Satan's strategy in your life and mine is is his desire to question God's word. Now, as you read this, think about what we've just read in the opening chapters of Genesis 1 and 2. We've read the story of creation, as we've already mentioned, unlike other ancient stories of creation, where the world is kind of this afterthought that results from conflict between the gods. In Genesis 1, we see that the world was was created orderly with purpose and intentionality. And we see that foundational to the creation of the world was God speaking, right? God speaks and things happen. I mean, when God speaks, things happen. When God speaks, there are never empty words. And that is true throughout Scripture. (laughs) 
And yet, even though that's the reality, Satan begins by questioning God's word. Did he, you know, did he really? Did he really say that? And ultimately, notice this, he's not simply questioning God's word. He's questioning God's character. Right? And that becomes, that that becomes more evident as the conversation continues, right? You know, it's like, no, you know, look, don't you get it? God doesn't really want you to eat that because he doesn't want you to be like him. You can't really trust him. He's not really good for you. He's not really for you. That's the heart of Satan's argument. He's questioning God's word, and in questioning God's word, he's questioning his character, his goodness. And as it turns out, Eve starts moving in that direction. In fact, um, if you look at verse 2, notice two things about her response. First of all, she, she discounts God's goodness. And this is a little hard to see in English. It's, it's clear in Hebrew. But in verse 2, she says, yes, we, you know, we can eat from any tree in the garden. But that's not an exact quote of what God had said in chapter 2, verse 16. Because when you go back to chapter 2, verse 16, here's what you see. In, in Hebrew, one of the ways you intensif- intensify a, a statement, one of the ways you really accentuate it is, is you actually repeat a verbal form. So if you want a, a more literal translation of, of verse 16 in chapter 2, it literally says you can eat, eat of all the other trees in the garden. And in doing that, what God was telling this couple is, you absolutely have to enjoy all of the bounty that I'm putting before you. I want you to eat to your heart's content of all these other trees. I want you to go for it. This is for you. These are the resources I'm giving you. This is why I want you to experience my goodness and just enjoy all of this. And then you get to chapter three and Eve says, yeah, he said we could eat all the other fruit. No, come on, Eve, you got to get into it. You got you to hear. And then what's happening is she's, she's discounting God's goodness. Furthermore, she's not only discounting God's goodness, she's also distorting God's judgment. Because as she recounts the prohibition about the tree in the middle of the garden, she says this, well, we're not even supposed to touch it, right? <laughs> and guess what? Here's the first example of legalism in the Bible, Right? And she doesn't, and so, so understand this, at, at the heart of Satan's strategy is the questioning of God's character, his goodness. That's, that is what God wants to do, and that is what Satan wants to do in your life and mine. And I know in my own life, sometimes it, when it feels like certain, you know, unhelpful thoughts or certain anxieties are taking root and I'm not really kind of contradicting them, what's running underneath that, if I allow it to take root, is just the questioning of God's goodness. I may not be thinking about it consciously, but that's what's going on. And that is foundational to Satan's strategy in my life and yours. Now, I think without going into a lot of detail, I think as this passage unfolds, we actually see three elements that are part of Satan's strategy. Let me just, if you're taking notes, let me just give you a couple of phrases. Here's what Satan does. He questions, he entices, he accuses. He questions, he entices, he accuses. First, as we've seen, he questions God's character and his goodness. And then he entices us, right? I mean, by the time Eve takes the fruit, it's like, wow, that's really, 
yeah, that would be great. That really looks, that's, this is the way I have to do it. This is going to be a source of wisdom. And I mean, he can't force you to do anything, but he, I think we're enticed to see somehow that what is actually the wrong course of action or the wrong way of thinking is, is actually best for us. So he wants it to look good and pleasing. And then at some point, when maybe we become cognizant of the fact we messed up, he then wants to nail you. He wants to accuse you. And right, we get to the end of the story and, and we see the entrance of shame and guilt. And I think that's a prelude to the fact that as we read further, we come to understand Satan as the accuser. And so this is his strategy. I just want you to be aware. This is his strategy. He wants to question God's goodness and character in your life. He wants to entice you by convincing you that certain courses of action, are, they're really good for you, even when they're not. And then when at some point, maybe you become aware that that wasn't the wisest choice or decision. He wants to hammer you with what a loser you are, what a failure you are. And the truth is, some of us, we get, we get caught in this cycle. So understand, this is Satan's strategy. And I think as we talk about this strategy, it, it then leads us to the next question, which is this. If, if Satan is wanting us to sin, what exactly is the nature of sin? Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now I think as we look at this, our, our immediate response to the question, what is sin, is, well, it's the breaking of God's law. God commanded them not to eat, they ate. Right? They broke the law, they broke his direction. And, and maybe, you know, when we think about sin, that's the first thing that comes to mind. And all of that is true, but there's more going on here. And I think to unpack it further, let's start by looking at this tree in the middle of the garden, right? This tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but if you're honest and you're familiar with the story, isn't it the case that you sometimes wrestled with, why did God put the tree in the middle of the garden? I mean, doesn't it seem like, you, you know, it's kind of just setting them up for failure? I mean, think about this. Some of you have kids in our Kids Step ministry. So imagine, imagine one of our kids and Kids Step, 10-year-old guy, 10-year-old gal, and okay, they go home after today. You know, they've heard the same lesson, which is so cool. So you can talk to them about it on the way home. But, but they get home and maybe, you know, we have lunch and we do lunch and then they're playing. Maybe there's a little nap and maybe there's a little video games, Legos or whatever they do. And then mid-afternoon, they kind of come to the dining room or the kitchen area and they find one of their parents and they say, you know, I'd really like a snack. So this parent looks at this 10-year-old and says, okay, I'm going to get you a healthy snack. But before I get you a healthy snack, I'm just going to put this bowl of Skittles right in the middle of the table. And I want you to wait for the healthy snack and whatever you do, don't eat the Skittles, don't eat the Skittles, don't eat, right? Now, we would go, that's just not fair, right? You don't parent like that. But doesn't it kind of feel like God did that in the garden? I'm going to give you all this wonderful food and trees and fruit, but there's one tree in the middle, that tree right there. Stay away from it. Well, let's, let's just think about this tree then. In understanding this tree, I think it is helpful to recognize 
But another passage is in the Hebrew Bible. This phraseology, this language, knowledge of good and evil, communicates the idea of making autonomous moral judgments. Now remember this first couple, these first humans, have been created and given tremendous freedom and authority. They have authority, they have responsibility, right? They are to rule over creation. Right, they, I think they are to expand the garden. They are to be at work in the garden. They are God's image bearers. And with that comes tremendous freedom and responsibility. They are to use all the resources in the garden. They are to enjoy all of its fruit. Yet as they do that, they are not to forget that they are God's image bearers. You're to rule in his image. You are to rule in a way that reflects his character, his will, his judgments. And I think this tree was a reminder of that. You aren't here to do this autonomously. You aren't here to decide for yourself what is right and wrong. Rather, you are to be image bearers. And so in putting this tree in the middle of the garden, it's not to set up a gotcha moment. Rather, I think what God was saying is this. Look, I'm giving you all of this, but as you enjoy all of this, I want the gifts to point back to the giver. I think that was the function of this tree. Consequently, when they ate from this tree, what they were saying was this. We will now decide on our own what is right and what is wrong. And so, yes, sin involves the breaking of God's law. It does involve behavior, but the heart of sin goes deeper. The heart of sin is self-rule. The heart of sin is I will choose, I will determine for myself what is right and what is wrong. And if the heart of sin is self-rule, the result of sin is separation. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. I mean, when, when... When we become the people who decide what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, then everything falls apart. And that's what happens here. We see separation on multiple levels. First, there's separation from God. The garden had been a place where they related to God, where they connected with God, where where they walked with God. And now he comes and they hide. Ultimately, due to their sin, they they are banished from the garden One author has noted, we generally refer to Genesis 3 as the fall, but we should also refer to it as the exile. Because from this point on, the driving question in Scripture is, well, how do we get back to the garden? How do we get back to that place where God is with us and we are with him? That's that theme that we're tracing as we go through Scripture. How do we get back there? Not only that, but... Not only do we see separation from God, which will ultimately lead to eternal separation, but we also see separation from from each other. I mean, notice the first thing that happens after after they sin, they become aware of their nakedness and covered themselves. (laughs) And isn't it, you know, aren't you kind of reading this along and you kind of go, and you just now noticed that, right? right? You're just like, really? Now you're only noticing that? But what's going on here? Well, think more deeply at this moment. Remember, in, in choosing their actions, they have now chosen a path of self-rule. They have now chosen a path where we are saying, I will be the arbiter 
of what is good and evil. And if I am the arbiter of what is good and evil, that means I now have the ability to make judgments about you, whether right or wrong. But here's the deal. If I now have that ability, you have it too. And that means you can make judgments about me. Positively, negatively, accurately, inaccurately. And now that they have chosen this path of self-rule, they now experience one of the consequences of that. This becomes the moment where tension, conflict, shame enter into human relationships. And out of self-protection, we have to hide. And that's exactly what is going on here. We hide to protect ourselves. So the heart of, of, of sin is self-rule and the result of sin is separation. And I think as we now start to understand the nature of sin in Genesis 3, that understanding leads to several lessons that we need to take away from this text. First of all, I think there, there are lessons to learn about our world. There are lessons to learn about our world. And most prominently, I think we have to recognize we live in a world where sin is at work, but God's rescue plan is already underway. We live in a world where sin is at work, and God's rescue, but God's rescue plan is already underway. So, so as you read farther, you see God's judgment on the people in this scene, and particularly in verse 15, the judgment against the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Interestingly, the, the Hebrew verbs here are actually the same. So there's this sense of, of the, the forces of evil are going to strike, but God's rescue plan will also strike back. And what we see here in the opening pages of Scripture is God's promise to restore what has been broken. Yet the reality is still we, we live in a world where sin is actively at work. And we have to recognize that. And I think when we understand this, we will, we will neither be naively optimistic nor unduly pessimistic. Rather, we will be biblical realists. That is, I will not be surprised by sin in myself or others. I will not be surprised by the brokenness of systems, of governments, of families. I will not be surprised by the separation that results but I also will not give way to pessimism, to cynicism. I won't spend my time simply grumbling or complaining about the way things are and the way things should be. But I'm to engage the truth that God's rescue plan is already underway and he invites me to be a part of it. So there are lessons, I think, to be learned about our world here. And there are also lessons that we need to learn about ourselves. As I said, the strategies that are at work in this passage are the strategies that Satan is using in your life and mine. So pay attention to that. First, there is the questioning. And I think one of the ways, one of the things Satan creates questioning is just by distracting us or encouraging us to focus on other things so that we're just not attuned to the goodness and grandeur of God. However, he can do that. He wants to do that. So the last thing he wants you to do is to be participating in this Love This Book series where we're trying to focus on the theme that God wants to be with us. So realize this is part of what he's trying to do in your life. Furthermore, he isn't simply questioning in your life, he's also enticing. 
There's certain things he wants to entice you with. And I think one of the ways he does this, he can think, is this. He will take good things and seek to make them ultimate in your life. Your work, your family, your possessions, your status, your reputation. In some ways, he wants it to become all-consuming and he wants you to be convinced that that's actually good. And then he will be accusing. When you realize you messed up, he wants you to be your worst critic. He wants to hammer you. He wants you to presume there really is no hope, that you were stuck, there's no turning back. Just hide, blame others, but you can't move forward. And for some of us, this is a cycle. And the only way to break out of the cycle is to also see in this passage the beginning of the theme of our hope. It's interesting when, when you follow the storyline of the Bible and we get to the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is very intent on dealing with the reality of sin and describing it and unpacking it. He doesn't shy away from it. Then we get to Romans chapter 5 and he actually takes us back to the scene in, in Genesis 3 and he wants us, I think, to sit there in Genesis 3 and understand the reality of what's going on and how this has introduced brokenness and sin and separation into our world. So in Romans 5, he says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. So he takes us back to Genesis 3 and he's, it's like he says, okay, sit here for a moment. I want you to see this. I want you to see the world is not as it should be. I want you to see the reality of how sin and brokenness has entered God's good creation. Furthermore, I want you to see that this isn't simply some historical reality. This is something you have become an active participant in. We've all been caught in the undertow of sin. So even as he looks back to the entrance of sin, he also says we've all sinned. We all are active participants. And he wants us, I think he wants us to sit here for a moment. But in taking us to Genesis 3, Paul doesn't stop there because ultimately in his understanding of Genesis 3, it's not the end of the story. Genesis 3 becomes an invitation. It becomes an invitation to see how much more is the grace of God. So he takes us here and he says, look, I, want you, I know we don't always talk about sin. It's not the best topic to talk about, but I want you to sit here. I want you to see the reality of the world we live in. I don't want you to shy away from it. I want you to name it. I want you to see it in your own life. I want you to see the ugliness. The, and, and, and don't just blame it on the people. I want you to see it in yourself. I want, to see, I want you to see how deep it permeates your own heart and soul. And then where it's just like he's taken us to the edge of the cliff and you just want to jump off, he says, but how much more? is the grace of God. And so we get to verse 15 of chapter 5, and this is what he says. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? See, Paul takes us right back here to see the ugliness of sin, not only in our world, not only, you know, we can blame other people. I mean, you know, we can talk about other realities, but he wants us to see the depth in our own soul. But he takes us in there not to leave us here, but to say how much more is the reality of God's grace. 
And for some of you today, this, is, this really is a message you need to hear. How much more? Maybe you're here this morning and, and you have yet to start this journey of following Jesus. And maybe part of the reason you've avoided Christianity is just a sense, you know, it's always talking about guilt and shame and all that. And I, I just prefer not to go in that direction. I just want to feel good about myself. But maybe at some level, there's still this sense that something isn't right. You just don't know how to deal with it. And Paul is saying, look, I, w- I want you to understand the reality of what's going on in Genesis 3 and the reality is at work in your own life, but I also want you to hear how much more. How much more is the grace that Jesus Christ is offering you? And I want you to know we would love to help you understand what it means to start that journey with Christ and how that journey starts. Even as we close this service, we're going to have members of our prayer team here. We'd love to pray with you about starting that journey of following Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning, you've already started this journey of following Jesus, but at times, you know, it just feels like you get stuck and there's certain things at times in your life that haunt you deeply. And for some of us, it's certain regrets about the past. We look at previous chapters in our life. If only I could go back and redo this. If only I could redo this. And we see places that are hard and certain relationships, and we know we've contributed to that. Maybe we just feel stuck. And you understand, Paul takes us back here to Genesis 3 so that he can show us, look, over that situation, you need to say how much more. And you need to begin to pursue God and say, okay, God, how can your grace be at work in this situation? And what does that look like? Maybe you're stuck in certain unhealthy patterns of thinking and behavior and it just feels like you're stuck there. It's so much easier to do what that first couple did. You just hide or you blame. Nobody else knows. Paul's saying, look, how much more? God's grace wants to be at work in your life, bringing you forward. What might that look like? What, what, what might it look like? Not simply to hide and blame, but to lean into God's grace in an intentional way. If the heart of sin is self-rule and the result of sin is separation, the solution to our problem is the cross of Christ. The solution to our problem is God's grace. And so now we're going to come to a, we're going to come to a time of communion. I'm going to invite our band back up and they're going to continue to lead us this morning. I'm going to lead us in prayer and then, then our servers are going to come and, and distribute the bread and the cup. I'm going to ask you just to hold that. But over the next few moments, I, I just, just challenge you to see that <laughs> that the Apostle Paul takes us to Genesis 3 to say, how much more? And I challenge you to see that maybe this morning there's a part of your life, there's an issue in your life, there's a part of your past where those are the words you need to write over it in your heart and mind. How much more? How much more? How much more? How much more is the grace made available to us through Jesus Christ? 
So I'm going to lead us in prayer. We're going to continue in worship. We're going to distribute the bread and the cup, and then I'm going to come back up in a moment, and we're going to celebrate this together. So God, as we've come to Genesis 3, we've struggled with this reality of sin. And Father, this can be, it can be challenging to talk about because the more we talk about it, the more we see it in ourselves. It can be challenging to talk about it because there are places in our lives we just much prefer to hide and to shield. And, and yet I pray this morning that we would see that while we live in a broken world, we don't have to hide. We don't have to shield. We just have to see how much more is your grace and lean into that. Father, may that, may that just be life-giving to us this morning. May your spirit just kind of blow winds of forgiveness and renewal throughout this room this morning. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.